All right, so today we are actually completing a series that we began at the very beginning of this year. It's a series out of the book of Proverbs called The One Thing. And this series has been um, focused on the one thing that can make us better at everything. It's this thing Proverbs talks about over and over and over again called wisdom. And as today is our last day in this series, what I wanted to do one final time is just define wisdom and remind us what it actually is. Wisdom, at its core, is the ability uh, to look out into the world, to look out into every situation you're going to find yourself in, every relationship you're a part of, and even the ability to look into your own heart with a depth of insight and understanding that the vast majority of people simply do not have. Uh, But more than just that, wisdom is the ability uh, to know what to do with all of that information. When you understand wisdom the way that Proverbs defines it, you realize it's almost like a superpower. And the reason that that it's so imperative uh, that we develop wisdom, that it's so vital to who we are and how we go through life, is because life is filled with situations that the moral rules simply don't address, and in a lot of cases can't even help you navigate um, simply by themselves. For instance, a lot of situations that we find ourselves in uh, in this life don't have an obvious morally right and morally wrong option. They just have a very wise and a very unwise option. And so if we're going to avoid making an absolute mess of our lives, we're going to need this thing that Proverbs talks about called wisdom. So throughout this series, what we've done is... um, We've defined wisdom and talked about how to grow in it and how it applies to all these different areas of our lives. But given that today is our last day, our final round in this series, I thought a lot about how I wanted to send us all off. And that brings me to the topic of today's teaching. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be wise regarding decision making. It's no surprise that the world has completely changed for every single one of us, for me and for whoever finds themselves on the other side of this screen. Uh, And not only has it changed, but I feel like it it continues to change, and it sort of feels like it's changing in waves, which makes it even harder to adjust to. I remember a couple of weeks ago we were told you couldn't have a gathering of 250 or more, and then that became 50 or more, and then that became 10 or more, and then we got the order to shelter in place. And the point is the world is just changing right out from underneath of us. And what that means is that we're forced to change along with it, regardless of whether we want to or not. And so what that means for all of us is that we have decisions to make, decisions that could have a tremendous impact on our lives down the road. We have decisions to make professionally, financially, relationally, personally, spiritually. And one of the things that we all have in common is we want to make better decisions that lead to better outcomes, not just for ourselves, but for the people that are counting on us. In other words, to put it plainly, we all want to make wise decisions. And so in order to do that, we need something that everybody who's navigating uncharted territory needs, and that's guidance, specifically God's guidance. I don't think there's there's anything like a global pandemic that puts us as acutely in touch with how much we need God's guidance in our lives. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to look at what Proverbs has to say about what God's guidance is like, uh, what we need to do to get God's guidance, And then lastly, what God has done to make his guidance available to us all. So first, Proverbs tells us that that God's guidance can be thought of basically uh, in, in, in two ways. And the first is this, God's guidance is paradoxical. 
Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. So first off, this word reckless basically means to be hasty, and it's referring to somebody who who acts without thinking things through, and it doesn't end very well for them. The, uh, the other side of that coin is, is this person that Proverbs refer to as the diligent. Diligent people, according to Proverbs, don't just work hard, they're intelligent and strategic in the way that they work. And so what this proverb is telling us is that if you and I go through life um, working very diligently and strategically and planning ahead, then generally speaking, life is going to go a lot better for us. In, in other words, in a nutshell, what this is saying is that the decisions that you make make a difference. That's a concept that I think all of us can readily grasp. But holding that concept in mind, I want to turn over to Proverbs 16.33, which says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, lot casting was a lot like flipping a coin or drawing straws. It was an activity that promoted fairness because of how random it was. But what this proverb is saying is that even though the lot is cast, its every decision is from the Lord, meaning everything in this life ultimately works out exactly how God planned. Now, the reason that I walked through these two Proverbs back to back is because they present us with with two ideas, two concepts that the human mind has an incredible amount of difficulty holding together. Because in our minds, the way that we generally tend to think is either our decisions really do matter because our destinies are not fixed, or on the other hand, uh, everything is predetermined and therefore our decisions really don't matter. But according to what Proverbs is saying here, you and I are absolutely free and we are absolutely determined at the same time. And this is why Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. And what that verse is saying is that your plans are yours, your choices are yours, and you are responsible for those plans and those choices. But what actually happens as a result of the plans that you make and the the choices that you make, that is controlled, it is fixed, it is determined, and it is set by God. So while your plans belong to you, the outcome belongs to God. Both of these concepts are 100% true at the same time. And as difficult as it might be to hold these two ideas together, It's absolutely imperative that we do, because if you only hold on to one of these ideas while letting go of the other, then you're going to have an incredible amount of difficulty in life. For, For instance, let me walk through this. If on the one hand, if you only believe the idea that everything is fixed no matter what, and that your choices are not connected to your destiny at all, then what will eventually happen is you will become very numb, very passive, and very indifferent in life, which is inevitably going to cause you to make unwise decisions that lead to destructive outcomes. However, if you break the opposite way, uh, and you believe that your destiny is not fixed at all, but in fact it is entirely dependent exclusively on the choices that you make, um, then you wouldn't really dare get out of bed in the morning. See, a, a lot of people claim that they go through life this way, believing that you know who I, who I become is entirely up to me and I'm going to make a life for myself and a name for myself. That's, a, that's kind of a common ideology in our culture. But I don't, my conviction is that nobody actually, actually honestly believes that. Because if you actually 
honestly believed that your life is entirely dependent, your future, your destiny is entirely dependent on your ability to exercise perfect wisdom in all the countless situations that you and I find ourselves in on a daily basis, if anyone actually thought that through to its logical conclusion, they would collapse under the weight of their own life. They'd, they'd, they'd be absolutely terrified, locked up uh, and terrified of the idea that at any given moment they might make a poor decision that has some kind of butterfly effect chain of reaction that leads to destruction somewhere down the line in their life or the lives of people that are caring uh, or, or rather that depend on them that they care about. And so uh, what I'm driving at here is that if you only hold on to the first idea, then you'll be very passive. If you only hold on to the second idea, you'll be very basically paralyzed. So Proverbs does not teach that your choices have no connection to your destiny, but on the other hand, it also does not teach that your choices entirely determine your destiny. What it's showing us here is that God, in his sovereignty, relates your choices partially to your destiny. Meanwhile, he is ultimately sovereign over and in control of the outcome. And so you and I are responsible on the one hand, but on the other hand, we can also rest and relax. So first, God's guidance is paradoxical. But the second thing that Proverbs shows us about God's guidance, this is our second main idea, is that God's guidance is not obvious. So in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, we read, The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Now what this proverb is teaching is that not only are little things a part of God's plan, uh, but actually so are bad things, evil things, the wicked. Now, if, if we hadn't covered what we just covered before this, that, 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 that we are responsible for our actions, yet God is sovereign over the outcome, then you might read this proverb and say, wait a minute, that's teaching that God is the author of evil. But remember that according to Proverbs, the plans of a person belong to them. That means the, the evil deeds belong to the evildoer and they are responsible for those evil deeds. God does not force anybody to commit evil. But what this proverb is saying is that God is going to use even the wicked actions of evil people throughout history to somehow accomplish the ultimate good. And if you're wondering what that looks like, I don't think there is a clearer picture of it, at least in the Old Testament, than the story of Joseph. Right? Joseph's story begins basically by showing that his father Jacob was totally destroying his own family uh, with his really foolish parenting style. Uh, he, he very obviously favored his youngest son Joseph to the point that he gave him this really elaborate coat. What wasn't even trying to hide how much more he loved Joseph than any of his other sons from his other sons. And so what that was basically doing, um, it was setting a trajectory in Joseph's life. Uh, that, that that would set for any child in that position where, where you know, unmitigated, dealing with his father's favoritism, Joseph was going to become incredibly self-centered and incredibly arrogant and under the conviction that he was something special and better than everybody else. And, you know, historically people who have that mindset early in life and, and it remains unchecked in them cause a great deal of harm uh, to, to a great deal of people. And the flip side of that was, was uh, Joseph's brothers, seeing their father's favoritism to Joseph, were becoming basically murderously envy, envious uh, and bitter toward Joseph. And so they came up with this plan to fake Joseph's death and to sell him into slavery in Egypt, which is exactly what they did. 
So Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt, and his brothers returned to their father, Jacob, uh, and covered up what they had done by saying that Joseph had been killed uh, by wild animals. And so nobody was even looking for Joseph. So Joseph finds himself, uh, overnight, he finds himself in Egypt as a slave. And while he's there, he's wrongly accused of rape, which further causes him to hit an even, you know, an, an even deeper low, where he gets thrown into a dungeon in this foreign country that he's been sold into as a slave. So if you, if you read Joseph's story and you zoom out, what you're seeing is this pattern where years and years and years of Joseph's life go by, uh, where he's constantly finding himself getting thrown into these deep, dark pits. He keeps calling out to God. He keeps getting nothing in return. And God continually appears to be absent or forgetful or to have completely abandoned Joseph altogether. That's, what, that's the way that the story looks in the middle. But then at the end of this story, what we can see is that it's only as a result of all of these terrible things that happened in Joseph's life, that he could first off become a man of greatness, that the dysfunction in his biological family could be healed, uh, that his biological family could be saved from starvation in the midst of this horrible famine, and so could thousands and thousands of families uh, throughout the world in that day. And, and that is all of that is only because of all of these terrible things that, that God allowed uh, Joseph to experience. But the, the point that I'm driving at, and, and I think the point that, that's really important for us to see here, is that it's only at the end that that became clear. Joseph would have never guessed that God was actively at work in his life in all those years, you know, working as a slave and getting wrongly accused in Egypt. But at the end, it became clear. And, and it even became clear to Joseph, because at the end of his story, which is actually the, the final chapter in the book of Genesis, there's this there's this picture of, of Joseph and his brothers finally facing each other when everything sort of calms down. And his brothers are, are rightfully so uh, terrified of the retribution that they're convinced Joseph is going to take against them. But Joseph looks them in the eye and he says something to them in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 that, that basically served as the summary statement of his entire life. Here's what he said, Genesis 50, 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. I just want to read that first part again. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. What those w- words represent is Joseph looking back over the course of his life, over all the hardship and all the pain, and all the tragedy, and all the seemingly wasted years, and the mistreatment, and the abuse, all of it. That's Joseph looking back over his entire life with the clarity that so often only comes to us in hindsight. And what he's saying here is, God's guiding hand never left me for even a moment. Even when it wasn't clear to me then, it's clear to me now that he was with me every step of the way, guiding me to exactly where he desired me to go. Now what this means for us today, living in the midst of this situation that the coronavirus has placed us in, this means two things for us that I think now more than ever we need to hold on to. What this means is first and foremost, you should never ever believe that God is not actively at work in your life, no matter how absent he seems. But right along with that, you should also never ever assume 
that you're going to be able to see all that God is up to in your life right now until years from now. Because that's how God's guidance works. It's not obvious. All right, so often in, in our lives, and, and maybe, maybe you can relate to this sentiment, so often in our lives we find ourselves in situations where we, where we say, man, I could really use God's guidance. I really need God's guidance. And we talk about his guidance almost like it's an, an Amazon package that's going to get delivered to us if we just you know, pray hard enough or, or say the right combination of words or live a good enough life. But, but what we can see th- throughout the entire story of the Bible is that God's guidance a lot of times is more something that he does than it is something that he gives. And so when somebody says, well, I really need God's guidance right now, the ultimate answer to that is, you're standing in it. You are in the middle of the current right now. Meaning right now, at this very moment in your life, you are being guided by God's unseen hand in ways that you cannot understand. You won't begin to understand it until years from now, and you will never fully understand it in this life. And so if you're listening to this right now and, and, you know, maybe you haven't put your trust in Jesus, you haven't made that decision yet, maybe you're not even really sure what you think of this, you know, church thing and the Bible and all this kind of stuff, but I, if that's you, I just want to say something that might sound very strange to you. God guided you to where you are right now. You did not simply choose to be here. God brought you here. God has orchestrated the events in your life to where you are at this very moment. It might be a very strange thing to think about and wrestle through, but it's, it's so important that we understand and think of God's guidance according uh, to these two aspects. Um, because when we do, uh, what they allow us to do is to remain calm and level-headed so that we can make wise decisions even in the midst of life's greatest storms. So first and foremost, God's guidance is paradoxical and it's not obvious. But as important as it is for us to understand that, that's obviously not all that we need to know. Because like I mentioned at the front of this talk, we are in situations right now where we do have decisions to make and we do need to know how God can help us make wise decisions. So the next question I want to ask and answer here is very clearly, how do we get the guidance that God gives? How do I get, how do you get the guidance that God gives? And I'll tell you, there is a crystal clear answer to that in the book of Proverbs. But I don't think it's, it's an answer that any of us particularly want to hear. But according to Proverbs, here's how you get the guidance that God gives. There's one way. You pay the price for it. And to show you what I mean, I want to look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. It says, commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be achieved. Now, at first, that proverb seems very simple because you probably misread it. Because I know I certainly did the first time that I looked at this. See, the way that we think, we would think that this proverb should say to commit your plans to the Lord, and then your activities will be achieved. In other words, come up with some goals in life that really honor God and pray through them. And, and then as you walk in that, then God's going to hammer out all the activities, the day-to-day operations, the details. But this says the exact opposite of that. This says to commit your activities to God, and then, and only then, will your plans be achieved. So this verse is actually a complete reversal of the normal way that people think. 
So what I want to do is just walk through and, and kind of explain exactly what it means. First off, when it says to commit your activities, this word commit literally means to roll over onto something and put all of your weight on it. So it's similar to the idea if you think about committing to a crutch and putting all of your weight on it, trusting it to hold you up. That's what this is getting at. What this is talking about uh, is to unconditionally trust God in everything that he allows in your life. And if we do, the principle here is that if we do that, then our plans will be achieved. Now, here's why I, I, I refer to this as paying a price. Elizabeth Elliot, who was a famous speaker and author, um, she actually, she was married to Jim Elliot, who died trying to get the gospel to an unreached people group. Elizabeth Elliot had a lot to say about God's guidance, and I kind of consider her an expert on the subject. And here's what she said. <clears throat> the more we pay for advice, the more likely we are to listen to it. Advice from a friend, which is free, we may take or leave. Advice from a consultant, which we've paid much for personally, we're more likely to accept, but it's still our choice. We can take it or leave it. But the guidance of God is different. First of all, we do not come to God asking for advice, but for God's will. And that is not optional. And God's fee is the highest one of all. It costs everything. To ask for the guidance of God requires abandonment. We no longer say, if I trust you, you'll give me such and such. Instead, we must say, I trust you. Give me or withhold from me whatever you choose. As John Newton says, what you will, when you will, how you will. What this is talking about, I think this might be the hardest thing imaginable for people. People so intent since Genesis chapter 3 on maintaining control of our own lives. What this is talking about is coming before God with a posture of the heart that says, from this moment on, I will obey anything you tell me and accept anything you send me, whether I understand it or not. That and nothing less is the price that we must pay for the guidance God gives. And according to Proverbs, it's as we repeatedly come to God with that posture that we will, over time, throughout our lives, uh, experience success and have our plans achieved. Now, you, you might be wondering at this point, maybe you're asking the question, why is it that doing this would cause my plans to be achieved? And the answer is this. Because when you continually commit yourself to God the way that Proverbs is calling you and I to, what happens is we become transformed. We become people who are wise. And therefore, we make plans that are wise. This is exactly what Proverbs has to say in chapter 11, verse 3. It says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the perversity of the treacherous destroys them. I just want to read the first half of that again. The integrity of the upright guides them. Now, wouldn't it be better 
Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better if this proverb said that God guides people who have integrity? But it doesn't say that. It says that a person's own integrity will guide them. What this, what this proverb is teaching, and I think this is so central to the entire message that Proverbs is trying to get us to understand, is that God does not so much teach you how to get guided like it's some technique that you can master. What God does is he transforms you into the kind of person that can get guided. And as God does this, slowly and surely over the course of our lives, we become the kinds of people who develop plans that are more wise and more just and more fair and more in line with, with who God is and what his nature is like. And so those plans by nature will be achieved because they're in line with God's will for our lives. But the key here is that this will only happen if we fully commit to him. If, if I can just revisit the story of Joseph for a moment. It's really easy for me to look at the story of Joseph and ask the question, was all of that really necessary? I mean, was it really necessary for God to allow Joseph and, and his family, for that matter, to go through everything that God allowed in order to achieve the result that was achieved? I mean, couldn't God, couldn't God have just come to Joseph and said, Joseph, your father's favoritism is turning you into an ugly person, don't let it. And couldn't God have just come to Joseph's brothers and say, hey, you guys are allowing hatred for your brother to grow in your hearts, don't let it. And couldn't he have just come to Jacob and say, Jacob, your foolish parenting style and favoritism of Joseph is going to destroy your family, so don't let it. And by the way, start stockpiling food because there's going to be a famine pretty soon. Right? If, if God had done things that way, if he had front-loaded everything that people needed to know it would have saved everybody in that story an incalculable amount of pain and suffering. And, 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 and there's not a person alive that doesn't wish that God did that same thing in their lives. We all want so badly for God to just remove the mystery and tell us on the front end everything that we need to know and spare us the experience and the pain and the suffering that comes along with it. But God doesn't work that way because we don't work that way. So, so let, me just, let me just offer you something that I know that you know is true. No one ever learns, no one has ever learned, no one will ever learn that they're a sinner, that they have deeply ingrained flaws, and that they are in desperate need of inner transformation. No one has ever learned that simply by being told. We have to be shown. We have to be shown. And the flip side of that coin is that no one has ever learned that God truly loves them by simply being told. We have to be shown, meaning we have to experience it on a deeply personal level. We have to have a genuine encounter with God ourselves. And the way that that happens, more often than not, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, and I guarantee you that you can comb your history and you'll find experiences like this happen over and over and over again. The way that God teaches that to us, more often than not, is by over and over again leading us into situations in which we are certain we've been abandoned and we've been forgotten. Only to make it through those situations and look back and realize that we were wrong about everything. That God went with us every step of the way. That he didn't forget about us for one moment and he never stopped loving us the way a good father loves his kids. 
But this is so key. Those experiences, those experiences like God allowed Joseph to have, those experiences that God will allow you and I to have, those experiences that we might very well have in the weeks and months ahead of us in the situation that we're in right now, those experiences will not automatically develop us. And what Proverbs is, is calling us to here is it's reminding us that in and through those situations, you and I cannot bail out on God. You can't give up on God. You have to commit fully to God. Even if he never gives you things that you have asked him for, that you have begged him for, that you have pleaded with him for, and even if he does allow you to receive things that you did not ask for. And over time, slowly but surely throughout the course of our lives, It's not just that the kinds of plans that we make will change, it's that we ourselves will change. We will become wise. We'll see our flaws more clearly, which means that the plans that we make will be more careful and more thought out, but we'll also see God's love for us more clearly. So the plans that we make will be more bold and more daring, and we won't be crippled with the fear of failure. We'll have the courage to try new things. And so we won't be destroyed by either our pride or our fear, but it's only as we commit to God full stop that we get the guidance that he's ready to offer. Now, as as great as that might sound, I, I think when you zoom out from what Proverbs is calling you and I to do, what should be abundantly clear to us is nobody can do this. Nobody perfectly trusts God. Nobody perfectly commits to God with an open-handed willingness to receive any outcome from him without questioning him or doubting him whatsoever. None of us have the ability to do that. None of us have the ability to commit to God like that. If it was a switch that we could flip, I don't know anybody that wouldn't have flipped it by now, myself included. So the question is, how do I commit to God like that? And there is one singular answer to that in Scripture. You want to know how you commit to God like this? By realizing that he has already committed himself to you. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. You know, during his time here, Jesus found himself on a boat with his disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the storm came out of nowhere, and the disciples were terrified because Jesus was asleep in this storm. And so they were convinced that their navigator had, had abandoned them and that they were forced to face this storm, which they were totally powerless in the face of, completely by themselves. And so they, they rushed to Jesus, and they woke him up, and they asked him the question, They said, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care? I think we have all asked God that question at some point in our lives. Even if we've never had the courage to say those words out loud. God, don't you care about what's happening to me? about what's going on around me? Don't you care about what other people have done to me? 
and the way that it still hurts me and still impacts me and still affects me even to this day. God, don't you care? And in response to that question, Jesus offered his disciples a question of his own. He simply asked them, where is your faith? It's always caught my attention that Jesus did not ask his disciples if they had faith. Because the human heart does not have an option but to generate faith and to place it in something. We all have put our faith in something. We're all counting on something. We're all looking to something to make life worth living, to make life meaningful, to give ourselves a sense of of self-worth. It's just a matter of where that faith is. And I think the question that Jesus asked his disciples 2,000 years ago in the Sea of Galilee is a question that we should all be asking ourselves right now. Where is your faith? Is it in the market? Is it in your money? Is it in the things you own, your job? Is it in another person? Is it in yourself and your ability to successfully navigate the, the obstacles and the challenges that present themselves in your life? Is your faith in this world? Where is your faith? So what the disciples didn't know that day on Galilee in the middle of their storm is that a far greater storm was on its way. A storm that was going to make theirs look like a gentle breeze. By comparison, it was, the, it was the storm of God's wrath that was getting ready to be poured out on the sin of the world. And they had no idea, but that was the storm that Jesus came down here to face and to face entirely alone, not just for them, but for us. Because in the middle of that storm, as Jesus hung on a cross with the, with the weight of all of our sin on his shoulders, Jesus was completely abandoned and forsaken by his Father. Meaning Jesus is the one person in history to fully, totally, and perfectly commit to God and yet be abandoned by him. And he went through all of that so that we would never have to. What the gospel shows us is that on the cross, Jesus faced the ultimate storm for us so that we could know in all of our infinitely smaller storms that not only are we not alone because Jesus is at the helm for us in this boat with us, not only could we know that, but that through through trusting in him, we could hold on to the promise that no matter how bad these storms get, no matter how dark the skies get, no matter how violent the storm gets, no matter how powerful the waves get, that we're going to make it through this thing and get to the other side safe and sound. And so it's as we, as we see and we remember again and as it becomes more real to us that Jesus has committed himself, himself to us that we grow in the ability more and more to commit ourselves to him. And as we do that, we develop wisdom. The wisdom that we need to navigate all that lies ahead of us in this life. You know, two weeks ago, I ended my teaching by providing you with an opportunity, if you're ready, 
to put your trust in Jesus because I know God uses circumstances like the one that we're in to get us to think about a relationship with him and what this life is really about and eternity and all that. So at the end of that teaching, I, I prayed and I welcomed anybody who wanted to put their trust in Jesus to pray with me. And I found out after the fact that a couple of people made that decision right then and there to give their life to Jesus. And I'm willing to bet that there are people on the other side of this screen right now who are ready to make that decision as well. So if you're listening to this, you have not made the decision to give your life to Jesus, but you're ready to do that, then you can repeat after me and make that decision right now. Lord Jesus, I need you to save me. So I'm committing my life to you. just as you committed your life to me. Please forgive me of my sin and give me the power to obey whatever you ask, to receive whatever you send, and to follow wherever you lead. In your holy name, amen. If you just made the decision to put your trust in Jesus, I hope you reach out to us and let us know so that we can celebrate with you, so that we can answer whatever questions you might have, so that we can pray with you, but most importantly, so that you know that you don't have to walk this thing out by yourself. But to close this teaching, to close our time together, And to close the Proverbs series off once and for all, I want to share with you words from a famous hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It was written by a man named John Cowper. Here's what he said. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. We're in the middle of a storm right now, and it's one that might not blow over anytime soon. But in Jesus, we have someone who is in this boat with us and has promised that he's going to take us to the other side, safe and sound, no matter what. I love you guys. Stay safe. That's it. And that's all.